0: Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. Uh, Hope everyone's having a good weekend. It's very warm in Brooklyn. My war on the pigeons continues unabated. Um, I had the very weird thing happen, which was I had a friend over and I pointed out where the pigeons were and I said, I seriously want them to die. I swear to God, Alexa pipes up, even though I didn't say Alexa and gives me suicide hotline resources because I think Alexa apparently is always listening for whether we express thoughts of self-harm thought. I said, I want myself to die, uh, which I'm not yet at the point of suicide validation over these pigeons. We'll see how the next few weeks go, but it was very creepy. It was just a reminder that we just, I have these three speakers in my apartment uh, hearing God knows what. Um, So it was very alarming just because I, I don't know if I'm used to, Anyway, um, I'm mostly just going to take your calls today. Obviously, well, not obviously, but in my corner of the world, the big sort of media story in the last couple of weeks was a uh, Times article by Katie J.M. Baker on the question of like youth transition and whether it should occur in schools without parents knowing with parents um, basically being kept in the dark by school administrators. Uh, some schools have a policy where... If a kid says that their parents are not accepting, that's sort of it. They get to decide. Uh, And to call this polarizing online would be a massive understatement, even among – you sort of know an issue is a big deal if, like – well, I was going to say, you know an issue is a big deal if even the left is tearing itself apart over it, but the left tears itself apart over everything. But on the left, on people who probably vote for the same presidential candidates, massive disagreement over whether this is, like – Obviously, the right policy, like akin to letting gay kids be gay without counting on them to their parents, or whether it was obviously a violation of both parents' rights and school's responsibility to ensure kids' well being. So, um, to me, and, and Michelle Goldberg wrote the most, I think, compelling version of the case for why parents should sometimes be kept in the dark. I, I've realized, and we talk a little bit about this on the latest podcast. It really comes down to whether you see social transition as like a little bit of a big deal. Um, A lot. Some medical authorities basically refer to it as like a psychosocial intervention. Like it's it's a thing that you want to do carefully, whereas. So in this argument, which is more or less my argument, although I think there's some times where if you have genuinely abusive parents, they shouldn't be told. you know, if a kid is experimenting with a different hairstyle or if a boy wants to put on a dress and walk around with a dress at like a granola accepting school, I would never say that um, teachers should like, inform on parents for that. For the same reason, like if, if parents... Uh, <laughs> um, Never uh, – sorry, I'm just getting very excited. I didn't turn off, I think. Uh, I'm incredibly popular, as you know. Um, if a kid was experimenting with atheism or with being more religious, I, there's no place for teachers to inform on them. Kids should have some degree of autonomy. But I think reasonable people can differ on what that level of autonomy should be. And my view is that a social transition is like a pretty big deal, especially if it occurs in a context where it's going to – maybe drive further of a wedge between parents um, and their kid. And the Times article uh, detailed one case in particular where the kid had autism and other uh, mental health comorbidities. And, like, you can go right to the WPATH guidelines, like the guidelines clinicians use to work with trans kids. And they say in situations where a kid has autism or other mental health concerns, uh, a careful, thorough diagnosis is more important. I don't think schools are doing a careful, thorough diagnosis in these cases. I don't think they often have the resources to. There's also remaining conceptual confusion about, like, are we transitioning kids because they have gender dysphoria, in which case they do have a mental health condition their parents should know about, or are we just doing it because shrug emoji, because they want to, in which case it's unclear to me why it's so urgent and why it needs to be kept from, a, um, from parents, so... That's just stuff I've been thinking about. I will leave it at that. Neil, what is what is up?
1: Hey, Jesse. So I won this by saying you finally got me to become a primo because I wanted that Bay Area party invitation. So. Nice. Um, so then also I want to ask, so why do you sometimes rename the call-in episodes to have these cool summarizing names and other times you just leave them as like Saturday chat, Friday chat, or whatever? Is there like a talk? Um... Pop- out of
0: laziness but also like if there's like some particularly interesting conversation that comes up or something that like is likely to come up in searches like i'm sure this one i will rename it um, something
1: about social transition and parental secrecy so okay okay that's basically it. okay and then lastly i want to ask so what's up with like hardcover versus paperback books right because the hardcover comes out first and then is more expensive usually but then sometimes the paperback is like released way after and then sometimes because it's so long after they have like an update and they add like more pages and then or they have like a new forward or postword or whatever and then neither version is definitive and i really dislike that but then looking at the page counts of your book that doesn't seem to be the case right this has the same number of pages though the paperback does have positive blurbs that the hardcover doesn't have so do you have a preference when buying and then which version of your book should i buy
0: uh you should buy the hardcover because it's more expensive if you really care about me you'll buy five to ten copies obviously um <laughs> so This is going to make me seem perhaps less relatable. I don't often (laughs) often buy books. I have books sent to me and like, if I want to read a book, I can usually get a copy and I go to the library. It's really whatever's most available. I prefer overall the feel of a hardcover book, but like a paperback uh, is more convenient and pliable. a lot of the questions of like what goes in which it really just depends on the kind of book it is, the level of investment on the part of the publisher. I believe my contract for the quick fix basically said uh, implied but didn't guarantee there would be a soft cover. Like there's sometimes books don't get a soft cover printing.
1: So yeah, it just depends on a lot of stuff. How how did that like model come about? Where there's like always like because what if you like just love paperback books but then like they only released a hardcover for this book like what do you do do you then like i just it's just such a strange model to me why is there not why don't they release both of them at the beginning i don't i just don't know how it works i don't know
0: well there's also there's also books that sort of go straight to paperback which is this is stupid and douchey but it's considered like a little bit less prestigious like I, authors prefer to have mm-hmm. books come out in hardcover but beyond that I'm, I'm really not sure i just don't know that much about the ins and outs of the industry
1: Interesting. Yeah, I always buy what's cheapest, yeah. but then I have, like, such a misalignment, like, of, like, even, like, for the same series, it'll be, like, super misaligned. It's just, like, really bad, but I don't know.
0: So, yeah. Anyway, Good questions, how... though, because I didn't I didn't even know the answer to them. Thank you, Neil. Pongo 2. Pongo 2,
2: how's it going? Hey, sorry. Just had to turn my vacuum off. Um, uh, yeah, so Responding to the New York Times article you mentioned at the front, um, doesn't it seem that, so I guess my interpretation of this is just that um, you're taking something that in the vast majority of cases, at least, if not all, is simply like the the newest version of identity, like adolescent identity exploration that people have always done, and uh, putting this like, Threat of medicalization over it, as well as like the the necessary necessity for like coercion of others to abide by it. So I don't. know, it, it just seems like the solution this is you have to take that you have to take that out of it. And as we I believe it talked about last week, it's basically backing this up is as far as I as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence that uh, no no real evidence that um, medicalizing childhood gender dysphoria helps anyone. So um, it it seems to, to me, at least from like the uh, the abstracted away from politics part of this, the, this seems like a no brainer. You just take the you just take the mental completely and if the kids want to refer to themselves as by she or by whatever pronouns at school, they can do that. And because there's no threat, there's no particular reason why it needs to be kept why why it needs to be informed to the parents any more than, you know, anything else.
0: Wait, so you're saying for just social transition, it's okay to keep it from the parents?
2: Well, so I, I mean, I think that another aspect of that would be I, I don't think I, I don't think we should be imposing social transition on everyone to co- to like abide by it. Yeah. Like, if if a friend if a kid wants their friends to call them by the, by a pronoun that doesn't match their sex, and the friends want to abide by that, who cares? I I, I generally don't think that this that uh, like we should be allowing like we I don't generally think we should be imposing like uh, uh, you know, people to uh, abide by trans or trans identified people's like sense sense of their gender in like a legal way. So I, I think that taking that out of it would also make things a lot simpler. Gotcha.
0: Um, yeah, I think uh, a lot of this would be simpler if there was a little bit of conceptual clarity over like what being trans is, and I'm not saying everything should have a simple dictionary definition, or that people's experiences of gender aren't, um, you know, interesting and confusing and subjective and hard to describe in language. But it just seems like when you're making policy, you can't really have the shruggy emoji be your explanation of like what transition is.
2: Well, I I, I think that um, it's the only the, the only reason why we need that clarity more for this than for anything else is because of. A the the threat of medicalizing it in ways that have irreversible consequences, and B the demand to impose people's self conception on everyone else in society, yeah. in many cases by like especially essentially coercion. I think that both of those are unnecessary. I'm not sure that there's any evidence that either of them helps anyone at what's your, all. What's your response and,
0: to the um the, the response to the claim that they're not trying to coerce you or anything? It's just a matter of being polite.
2: Uh well i mean it's it's an it, it is it's it's a non sequitur like um if you like it, i I'm allowed to be impolite to people unless it, when, when they're when they're trying to make it as though when they're trying to make it hate speech to be impolite to people that so like politeness is something that's negotiated between individuals uh what they're what they're doing in the in the case of things like you know force, like requiring that trans identified males be allowed in female bathrooms or, you know, allowing people to be charged with hate speech or fired based on not using the correct pronouns. That's something different. Gotcha. Um, and, it, and it isn't generally something that we, that we insert into anything else. Like, anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, no, I, I'll let you go in a minute. I mean, that to me, you. This is sort of quickly escalated where like misgendering or not so, you not using someone's name is like equated with um, a hate crime or using a racial slur. So they'll say like, oh, so you're mad that you're not allowed to hurl racial slurs in school? And, and to me, it's obviously slightly more complicated than that. I say, as someone who does, I I just do respect pronouns as a rule, except but, in like some really weird
2: outline. That's that's like, that's like totally your that's totally your choice. I mean, in my life, I mostly respect them as a as a rule as well. But it's not it's not as though it's not as like, I mean, people, people, especially, you know, people in high school are allowed to be rude to each other in every other way without without usually being without usually being directly punished from it, except in certain contexts.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Thank you for the call. That's a reasonable take. Mega, mega star. What's up? No megastar. Hey, hey, what's up? Can you hear me? Alas, we got some uh, tech or mic issues. Let's see if Justin works. Justin, how's it going? I hope I do. Yep, we're good.
3: All right, great. Um, so yeah, I listened to the last uh, BNR. Episode and it was the, the long one. It was really good. Uh, I, I found myself laughing more than usual, which I guess kudos to that you and Katie. Um, I also quite enjoyed you got um, you seem to be more fiery than usual uh, when it came to kind of the implementations of some of the, the topics that you guys frequently discuss, especially I think the stuff around kids like uh, the way that they're being treated at schools and the parents and stuff like that. Is, is there a shift happening within you as well? Like, I've previously commented that I think Katie's getting red-pilled. Is this happening to you?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I think, like, if you read my coverage of this stuff from, like, 2015, 2016, back then I also thought people were maybe being slightly too flippant about, like, even social transition. Um, I I think there's kids who should socially transition, but I I think – Flippancy about social transition is not as bad as flippancy about medical transition. I think flippancy about giving kids hormones is fucking insane. And it's incredible to me that, like, actual medical professors engage in flippancy, given how little evidence there is. Um, But it's still, like, a pretty big deal to decide to socially transition a kid. And and it's been frustrating watching, and I think maybe this drives me getting fired up, like – we actually know a little bit about the gender identity trajectories of preteens in particular. We know nothing about adolescents, so we should be even more careful there. Uh, preteens do often desist. Their feeling of being the other sex or of having gender dysphoria often goes away. And I know for anyone deep in this controversy, you know that as soon as you say that, people will insist that no, we don't know that. The studies that show that are so broken, it's just not true, like if you read them. So I think I don't like this idea that, like, A subset of activists just sort of decided we're going to pretend this thing that happens doesn't happen. And now you can see that trickle down to parents who get freaked out. And as soon as their kid puts on a dress or says, I think I'm a boy, they assume that that's just who the kid is permanently, which is not an evidence based way to deal with this problem, but schools are adopting policies based on that idea that a kid has like a permanent essential gender identity that you can't question. Um, and that just is what it is. So that might be part of why I'm fired up about it. I just think the, I don't know, the attacks on like the science here have been pretty bad.
3: Yeah. And am I mistaken? Or I think it was in the UK or maybe one of the Scandinavian countries. Didn't they recently kind of, uh, Make some decisions, or or maybe it was a medical org I'm, – I'm really confused on the specifics here uh, – that basically called out uh, social transition as an intervention.
0: Yeah, this was the cast review uh, in the UK, which is like – it was a very big deal. The cast review was not quite as, quite as formal as the these other reviews there in Finland and in Sweden. But yeah, that was one of the points they made is that uh, – it's not a neutral act. I mean, trans activists will accurately say that it's not a neutral act to not let a kid socially transition. I guess nothing's a neutral act, but yeah, that was the cast review.
3: Right. Okay. And then, uh, last bit, uh, sorry, I think I tend to go on here. The, um, the, I'm kind of sympathetic to what Pongo Two was saying about kind of what the evidence is. And you, you were also mentioning that there's a, uh, there's kind of like a they want to have their cake and eat it too thing going on when it comes to um, trans. Uh, it, it's it's a very important issue if a kid is going to be trans or not. They're Maybe they're going to kill themselves if they don't get the proper support, right? But at the same time, oh, it's nothing. It's just, you know, ask my friends to call me by a different name. What's that right. mean? It's nothing.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, is it, uh, isn't that not born out of just kind of the incoherence of, gender identity and how that intersects with what the current definition of trans is more. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think if you look at the current definition of being trans, it it would apply to maybe 95% of the population. So you have a, um, a designator for what's supposed to be an oppressed and marginalized group that like, I, I, I am trans by this definition. It's like discomfort with the gender roles associated with your sex assigned at birth or whatever. Um, versus if you, and the I think the reason it's such a loose definition is cause like within the LGBT community, they don't want gatekeeping. They want people to be respected for how they identify, for who they say they are, which there's totally a case to be made for that. But um, it does make things a little bit incoherent. Whereas gender dysphoria is a DSM condition and you can at least make the case if you're socially transitioning a kid to alleviate their gender dysphoria, there's like a clear, coherent reason for why you're doing it. Whereas if you're doing it because the kid says they want to, and that's your only reason, like kids say they want a lot of things. And we don't take a lot of those requests seriously.
3: Yeah, totally agree. All right. I got more, but I'll get back in the queue for it. Thanks, Jesse.
0: Thanks, Justin. Simon, what is up?
4: Oh, hey, Jesse, uh, long time listener, first time caller. I was- Welcome. Oh, thanks. Um, I was listening the other day to the conversation you had with Brett Weinstein and uh, Weinstein, and James Lindsay back in 2020, and really peculiar because both of these people have since gone off the deep end. So yeah. I guess the questions are:
0: I think when people are, are you... exposed to me in high large doses, that tends to happen to them.
4: E- exactly. But I I wondered because by this point we'd had COVID, we'd had the lockdowns, all this stuff. And they weren't quite mad yet. James, it seems, was on the on the cusp. Um, what do you think tipped Brett over? Because he's since gone totally bananas. I think um
0: what happened to him at Evergreen was really messed up. And I think in the wake of that sort of expulsion from your community, and especially almost more psychologically damaging than having a bunch of people say, fuck you fascist is seeing people you care about not come to your defense because they're scared. Um What I went through was a small fraction of what he went through. I didn't lose a job. I didn't get driven out of a community where I was established, but it was still pretty bad. So I think that's a vulnerable moment for people. And I think that's maybe when you're sort of psychological idiosyncrasies toward conspiracy theorizing or toward like, well, this happened to me, what can I trust? Uh, And there's a sense of like epistemic vertigo, right? Like if my world can Mm -hmm. be turned upside down this quickly, and if the authorities can act in such a craven manner, why should we trust anyone? Why should we trust the CDC? And I'm now veering into like maybe unfair psychologizing, but I've just seen this happen quite a bit. And and. You know, I, I think it should have some bearing on what we should do, how we should treat people who we think have sinned or have messed up. And I, I think we should act with some degree of grace toward them, because I really think there's a dynamic where people just get pushed into other stranger waters uh, in the wake of an incident like that.
4: Yeah, there's this idea of in theology, isn't there, of the of hamariography, uh, right? The, the study of how sin enters into the world. And it's like... Um, when, uh, when, 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 you know, the, the blue checks on Twitter, all these people, uh, they identify somebody who thinks differently, you know, sometimes they, they, they are completely wrong. That you, you can latch onto them as the source of, source of this kind of sin, right? This, this, this bad stuff and you pile on them and I guess, uh, yeah. Yeah. It does drive them off the deep end. That wasn't very coherent. That was more of a statement. But, no, uh, I mean, I'm
0: not, and I'm not sure my explanation's go here. not I'm really, I'm theorizing without knowing. I just, I find it the situation with, with Weinstein disappointing Cause I think he's really, um, look, I'm not saying we need to always put our complete trust in the CDC or the WHO or anything. I think that would be naive, but I, I just think some of the more gonzo anti-vax stuff is really harmful and you need to be very careful about it because, uh, yeah, that's all I got.
4: Yeah. Great. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Simon. I'm skipping you, Neil, because you already spoke. If we can get to it again well Will, I'm gonna go to Patty. What's up, Patty? Patty, hello. Yeah,
5: it's been here.
0: <laughs> yeah.
5: It's bring your mission in Berlin. Go Coleman. <laughs> I haven't been to Berlin for six years. I'm
0: still tired. Uh, I really miss list. it. I, 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 I know. Haven't it 2019. Yeah.
5: Although not, not, not this time of year. It, it is so dark no. this time of year. It's so dark. But anyway, speaking of darkness, here we are. Um, so I would love to talk a little bit more about what's still not being addressed at all in the t- coverage of the trans youth issue. And I've been really just so gratified to see some real reporting going on here. I think this is a desperately needed corrective. In the uh, comment section to the New York Times article, and I I always read those comments religiously because I think you do get more of a sense of where liberal America really stands, at least sort of hyper-educated, relatively elite liberal America. And you you saw there's such mixed opinions, but um, of those who sort of took the Michelle Goldberg opinion, there seems to be this kind of uncontested sense that, parents of trans kids and again i'm going to use that term for shorthand even though i you know i don't think we really can identify what a trans kid is or who they are yeah. but not at least not very reliably but there is this uh, idea circulating that they are likely to throw their kids out onto the street and that's something of course that is a hangover from time when times when that was really common among parents of gay kids yeah. it still happens i don't want to be at all in denial about that But the online discourse is the piece of this that's missing and people not questioning the idea that there are just, you know, these absolute legions of transphobic parents who are going to be abusive of their kids. But meanwhile, the kids are hearing online from their influencers. Well, if anybody questions your identity, they are literally killing you. And that is abuse. Misgendering is abuse. Failure to immediately affirm is abuse. And that is such a big part of this discourse. It's like the hidden part of the iceberg and Do you have any ideas about how that might enter into the conversation? I mean, I'd love for you to write about it, but I also know that it would be like a Keffel style project of going down internet rabbit holes to see what's going on.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really good question. I think maybe Abigail Schreier did a little bit reporting on this question of like what we know from surveys where kids say they were kicked out of their home and how it's often Mm -hmm. more complicated than that. Yeah. I think it's similar to the suicide stuff where like you take these online surveys where, 50% of trans kids in some surveys, you know, say they've contemplated suicide and where there's no precautions in place to get a more realistic estimate. Cause we know that for various reasons, just asking someone yes or no, have you considered suicide isn't going to get you that great an estimate of how suicidal they are. I think it's the same thing where like some of these studies are online activist samples and kids might be incentivized either to say they've been kicked out of their house when they have it, or to interpret it. Like you're saying, like, interpret any sort of questioning um, as abuse. So yeah, I saw the same thing online. It was like this idea that the parents in the Times article were were abusive, full stop, which like, um, that would drive me crazy as a parent because I think it's a pretty big deal if your kid comes out as trans and you should want to make sure that this is the right decision for them, especially when hormones are involved. I, I, uh, this is the kind of thing that could get me in trouble. I don't think there are like tens of millions of parents who are going to kick their kids out of the house or physically abuse them for being trans. I think there's a lot of shitty parents out of there, out there a lot who wouldn't handle this in you know maybe the best way. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's harmful to spread these ideas without good data. It's harmful to tell trans kids that hey, you're going to kill yourself. You're inevitably you're going to kill yourself. I mean, yeah. you're, your parents hate you. They're going to kick you. I, it's just we. I just don't think we have good data. Is what it comes down to
5: yeah and i and I see the sort of end of the pipeline with that with uh you know young trans identified people who really legitimately believe and these are people I know in real life now that they are about to be genocided and what that does to their mental health on top I can't of
0: imagine i mean it's, but, it's yeah, that, so that people, term genocide is thrown around unironically I know I know Uh
5: yeah, makes me a little crazy but yeah. yeah i I would welcome seeing more coverage of the social media piece of this, and you're right, Trier did do a little on that, but there's a lot more to be done there. I think Eliza Mondegreen, I mean, she's she's often pulling things off of Reddit. And uh, yeah, oftentimes that takes you down a rabbit hole. If you, but yeah, that's that's kind of the big unspe- unspoken piece of it that I would love to see show up in the Times in particular.
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you, Pat. It's a good question and comment. Yep. Take care, Jesse. Be well. you just rather not say what's up.
6: unmute can you hear me now i can yeah yeah um i actually wanted to talk to you about statistical modeling but um because just this is me just using um my undergrad um but it seems like from this new york article everybody from both sides is sort of having a this is using butler a very performative kind of view of trans and just the reason i'm just saying that is I don't know if every parent was to, at the beginning of the year, they were to say, Would you support your child if they're trans? They were to take a list of that. And then if you were to say you're trans in school, the, the school would say, We're not going to tell your parents, but every time you bring it up, we're going to mention that your parents love you and support you. <laughs> that, like, the kid wouldn't do it because it's just as he's, as everybody's explaining it, it's, just when I deal with these minorities, they seem to. Have, it's, it's very different than it's online. And it just seems like if this person's autistic, if this person's having social, which is it's a group that really wants to define social role. It feels like he's just moving into trans to be in that social role. And if they destroyed it by saying, oh, yeah, you're trans, but your parents support you. I don't know if he'd stay in it.
0: <laughs> well, you're saying if it wasn't transgressive, people would be interested in it.
6: Well, not even that it would be interested in it. It's just like for, for me, when I'm su- supporting, ref- doing stuff with refugees or doing stuff with trans or, or whatever, um, and you sort of treat them like humans, often the people that are the least in that subgroup just get confused. Like <laughs> it's because the role is so defined. But sorry. But what I actually, latent growth curve models, yeah. what do you, you need on that?
0: Oh, um, if you're familiar with that area, just send me an email. I, it's just something I'm working on. Um, hard to explain publicly, and it's something I don't yeah, yeah, okay. want to talk about. But if you want, if if you know, if you have some expertise, shoot me an email. I, I'd be happy to ask you. I'd appreciate it.
6: No problem. Then have a nice day.
0: Thank you. Uh, AA, let's see if we get you on this time. What's up? Can you Hear me. Hello. I can Okay, much
7: better. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, you brought up Michelle Goldberg earlier. I wondered if you caught the debate between her and uh, Matt Taibbi and Malcolm, uh, Douglas Murray and Malcolm Gladwell?
0: I did not. A lot of people were talking about it. I just haven't had a chance to watch or, or listen to it. How did she do?
7: You were alluded to it uh, uh, in this exchange. I love village.
0: being alluded to. What did they say?
7: So the exchange was, the debate was whether we should trust mainstream media. And one thing that Michelle Goldberg mentioned, we should we should trust mainstream media is look at all this good recent reporting, skeptical reporting on trans issues recently. This is proof how reliable mainstream media is. And Matt Chetty's response is almost no one has been talking about this for a long time, except for maybe like that's referring to you, obviously. Um, I don't think you said your name, but it was a reference to you. It, it, it reminded me, I think, of the Winston Churchill quote of uh, the Americans always do the right thing after every other option is exhausted. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I get the impression it's like I. it seems like a bit, pretty weak defense of the mainstream media to say they're getting the, the trans issue right now after getting it, in my eyes, such a horrible job. for such a long time
0: um yeah i mean it was i think it was a pretty bad period i i also I, i'll revert to my catchphrase it's more complicated than like getting it right or wrong it's just like are they doing real journalism which i think more and more are um look it was it was a bad spell my atlantic have, uh cover story did come out in 2018 so it's like there was some reporting on it um this has not been a proud moment for journalism. And, and the piece I'm working on that I, I asked about the statistical question is there's an, there's another example of journalists absolutely acting as PR folks uh, for researchers who haven't done their homework and haven't covered all their bases. So there's still a lot of bad stuff going on, but uh, you know, if the question is, can mainstream media write the ship and correct its prior errors, I, I could see this as pretty good evidence of that. I mean, like, excuse me, the New York Times alone, uh, Azeen Gureshi, Emily Bazon and now Katie J.M. Baker. Oh, and the, the Megan Toohey and the other investigative reporter. You have like half a dozen people who just in the last few months have written like really, or maybe last year, have written like really thoughtful articles about it. So I don't know. I think we should cut them some slack. I, I still, uh, for me, I'm grateful with how the timing worked out with this being a big issue and Substack and uh, my ability to just say whatever I want and get paid for it. So...
7: I, I generally agree. It does count for something. I think, it, yeah, it is a, you know, it speaks well of you to get it right. Or I say get it right. Yeah. It's more doing, doing good. Yeah. I'm not sure I got it right. Of... I just think I try to be careful yeah, yeah,
0: and, yeah. and critically minded about it.
7: I think they're doing that more now, which is, which is, does speak well of them, but it also, I think it makes me trust them, not trust them if they're you know, did such a, or have done the opposite for a long time. Um, I think that was the debate. Um, the, the really scintillating part of the debate was, uh, Malcolm Gladwell basically repeatedly called meta Taibbi a racist, like over and over again, saying, "Oh, you are, you're so nostalgic for this period of only white men doing reporting." And That's Matt Taibbi, for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, a quick comment, I think I have about the uh, the debate on uh, whether we should tell parents if their children are trans in school. I think that a lot of the different ways that people would approach this is like your underlying view of how effective and safe or like uh tra- or necessary trans uh treatment is like if, if i for instance if, like if i thought like a kid was like a um their parents were would say christian scientists who didn't want them the <sighs> to take medicine and they yeah. were taking like life-saving medicine to school i would be completely fine with it but um if it was reverse we're taking like medicine that was destroying them i might be against it. i think that um people who think that trans but health is incredibly effective and necessary are very inclined to support this, but people who are skeptical of that are inclined to 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 support it. Well, I
0: think that applies to social transition too, which is really the locus of this conversation. But people view uh, social transition in sort of a um, similarly miraculous light. Like a kid could kill themselves if they don't get access to it. Uh, I think that's exactly right. Like your, your reaction to this is premised on how convinced you are of these scientific claims
7: yeah exactly and I, I mean the same for social transition but like yeah i think that mostly people aren't going to be convinced because if you think this is true then it's like downstream other facts which you think are true yeah. um and this is why i think there's a lot of people are some people i've seen are, are mad at your article we kind of would be mad at regardless and vice versa people who just think the trans stuff is bad and they're like this is good because i don't think trans stuff is good etc um I'll, i would like to uh mention, I think last time last week there was a question that Pongo too asked, which is kind of a similar to question that I'd asked before. And I think it's I'm I'm expecting you have a good answer at this, at this moment. But I'm wondering if you're thinking about it more, is like the question that I'm thinking about more and more is you know, what evidence would I need to see to think at this point um trans healthcare is probably not worth the the risk? Or it's like what do we need to what evidence needs to be shown? that would demonstrate we, we shouldn't be doing doing this anymore and vice versa. Like what evidence would be shown that makes us think we should do more of it or like have it viewed a different way. So like, yeah. how, how do you give an answer to that? Uh, or have you, you have a more developed? I mean, it's a there?
0: similar answer where like one major obstacle is, I don't think we're going to get studies where like the claim is that uh, these treatments save kids from suicide. The problem is I think clinicians, the kinds of clinicians who run these studies are leery about putting genuinely suicidal kids on these treatments. Uh, so we're probably not going to get like clean studies showing like, yeah, they went on the treatments, they got better. We controlled for other factors. Uh, for me, if there were just more studies control, like that actually had comparison groups, like you could do a weightless comparison group, which one study did and, and actually showed very little difference between the, the weightless group and the puberty blockers group. I think it was blockers, not hormones. Um, you could do studies that just have like sort of a matched group of somewhat similar, just it's the absence of any comparison group in a lot of these and it's the reliance on self-reported and online survey data. Those are just terrible bases for like medical evidence. So short answers, I'm not sure what would convince me. And and there's like in either direction and there's there's like legitimate reasons we're not going to get the kinds of studies we really need.
7: Well, yeah, that seems fair enough, but, The fundamental issue here, or one big issue, is that in the absence of good evidence, which doesn't seem to be forthcoming, is your what you think is kind of premised on like what your fundamental assumption of like, the null hypothesis is. So if you think that in the absence of good evidence, you should assume that we should continue, then you continue. If you think in the absence of good evidence, you should think we should stop, we should stop, right? But that question is like pretty philosophical and hard to come up with a good answer on. But it seems like a lot of people have the null hypothesis to think we should continue. Um, in most in most medical situations,
0: idea? the answer would be no. If you don't have evidence, you shouldn't do the treatment. I, I think this is an unusual area of evidence that didn't go through like the normal clinical trials and unfortunately spread very far and very wide before the evidence was in. So I think like pragmatically, you just like you can't just ban a treatment that's this far along Um uh so that's why i think maybe the focus should be on like assessment and on understanding the complexities of gender identity but um i I, look i don't really have a good answer to the question of like why should we do it if there's not good evidence i just uh i just think there's a lot of reasons not to want to ban
7: these treatments i think that's a reasonable answer yeah It, it might say yeah in a perfect world we might want to have been more fastidious at the start but given that the cat's out of the bag and we can't go back, we can't just choose whatever world we want, given the world we have, it might be best to just be careful as we can be, given this is going to happen regardless. That makes some sense.
0: Yeah, to- I mean, I feel like I think the direction of like the Scandinavian countries is, is sort of the right move. Like they're like, no, we're not just going to give these out like candy when the evidence is this is week, Is this week. We're going to do it in more study and experimental settings. Those studies should have been run long ago. But um, that's a, definitely a fair question. I appreciate the call.
7: Uh, thank you. One but, but quick, that's the last question. I think I'd like to see you write about this in the near future, maybe if you are inclined towards, would be a question of, should it be viewed as an experimental treatment? I guess that would be the question that I've heard a little bit. It's like, should it be, should the the level of testing move back to, in like a very niche way compared to what it is now?
0: Yeah, I, I still haven't. I still I don't know why I haven't looked it up yet, what the exact definition of experimental treatment is in the US. Um, in terms of my colloquial understanding of the term, uh, giving kids, putting kids on blockers or hormones after one clinic visit, which is what a lot of um, clinics are doing according to Reuters, is absolutely an experimental treatment. We have no data anywhere of cohorts of kids who are put on hormones or blockers after one visit. It's just, it doesn't exist in the literature, so that's an experiment. and. Why not experiment on some kids? What's the worst that could happen?
7: Well, yeah, nothing's <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Jesse.
0: Yep. Eli is going to be the last caller this afternoon. Eli, what's up?
8: Um, uh, a comment and a question. First, if I understood correctly, the, the I listened to the episode about the reading walls, and if I understood whole reading correctly, it is amazingly stupid. That,
0: yeah. I've, so I now, this was a, Katie did a segment on this and I now listen to the podcast called Sold to Story, which I highly recommend. I meant to tweet about mm-hmm. it. Excellent investigative journalism. Yeah. There was this model of how kids learn reading that appears to have been based on absolutely nothing and uh, spread far and wide. And now a lot of kids don't know how to read. Or a lot of yeah.
8: I'm, to read well. I, I'm not sure if any other language, because I am Israeli and Hebrew is, has a much more consistent and simple Um, spelling system than English does. But of course, we still learn to read. Sound out letters, yeah. Yeah, that's the only, I mean, no one expects it. If you just read, you know, Hebrew to someone, they'll magically, I think it's just idiocy of just amazing. The thing that I want to ask is, have you heard about the protests here? Actually, I know since you have an interest in Israeli politics. Uh,
0: These were protests
8: against a new right-wing government? Well, uh, so what's happening is that uh, Israel has a Supreme Court. Um, Right, so the idea is there's
0: going to be a way for um, the Knesset to basically overrule the Supreme Court with a supermajority vote, right?
8: Not even a supermajority, just a majority, actually. Oh, bare majority, okay. Oh yeah, just 61 votes. Um, So the basic idea is that there are two main things. One, this thing, it's um, uh, that basically the the, the Supreme Court won't be able to invalidate or just block any laws that the Knesset... um, legislates and the other thing is that uh in israel right now the way judges are appointed it's not entirely through the judicial system but it's not entirely political either yeah. and the idea is that politicians will do the appointing and the way the government frames it is oh we'll just just you know democratic why do we have these unelected left-wing ashkenazi uh, <laughs> i'm not i'm not kidding ashkenazi is in there um so uh, snobbish people self-appointed uh I don't know, uh, arbiters of righteousness, why right. Why do they get to tell the people's representatives what to do? They also want to um, weaken the, what's called the judicial um, advisors, basically uh, people uh, appointed to kind of judge whether the actions of a certain ministry as a, uh, according to uh, jive with the law or not. So because uh, we don't have a constitution, so it's that... So, the basic idea people, like tens of thousands, or hundred, last time, just more than 100,000 people on the streets, because uh, without the Supreme Court, we have no constitution. There would be nothing to stop the government from passing any law it wants. And considering the people who are in the government right now, any yeah. law they want is pretty bad.
0: Yeah.
8: Yeah. Um. So, yeah I've, I just came back from a protest that had torches and then I saw you were on so I was like oh Jesse might be interested and then again he might not and well I no know.
0: I am and so I got back from Israel and I was like all fired up and I read a third of the the Benny Morris book and then just I just am so behind on everything and I don't even I supposed do I was supposed to do a, <laughs> a, to do a second yeah. post on um, about Israel for my newsletter and I talked to uh, a really smart Canadian Israeli journalist. I emailed with this Palestinian woman who I thought was great and
4: mm-hmm. I really
0: wanted to do another post and it just hasn't happened yet. But uh, no, they, it, it, they told us all about this stuff when we were over there and it's just, it's very interesting. It's partly just interesting to see um, the ramifications of not having a constitution. Our constitution is in many ways a mess and in many ways an obstacle to us getting stuff done, but it does like, you know, it puts, it puts certain checks in place and those checks can
8: be useful yeah or put another way for every second amendment there's a first amendment
0: yeah exactly yeah that's that's well put <laughs> anyway so uh
8: good night jesse go rest i guess thank you okay.
0: no, no, uh i actually have to go i, I uh i'm seeing louis ck tonight uh first oh, i'm really? getting dinner with my brother and a family friend and then louis ck don't tell anybody guys this stays between us that i'm seeing who <laughs> will hopefully not uh ask me to masturbate in front of him uh okay Thank you, as always. This was very good conversations. Uh, yeah, stimulating questions. Um, as always, I would just ask if you like dystopia. He masturbates, not you. What did I say? I, I thought I meant to say I hope he will not masturbate in front of me. But I hope I didn't say something more creepy than that. Someone tell me in chat I'm worried about this. Oh, God. I didn't mean the opposite. Correction. Fact check. Um, <laughs> I don't even want to know what I said. I'm just not going to listen. Thank you guys for listening. If you like the show, tell other people about it. uh, And have a good rest of the week.